Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from America Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church in our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. If you are listening to this right now, I am in a food coma. Yes. So, so happy it, Thanksgiving. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. Uh, we're obviously recording this before Thanksgiving, but the plan is for this to come out on November 24th, which is, in addition to being Black Friday, the 10th anniversary of the Apostolic Exhortation Evangelii Gaudium, also known as The Joy of the Gospel by Pope Francis. Yes. So 10 years ago, I was... Um, studying in Rome as a college student, 2013. You were working here at America. Yeah, I just I got here. Yeah, um, and this was Pope Francis's first major teaching document that came out. So it was pretty highly anticipated. And, you know, we were just talking, um, looking ahead to this anniversary, and it really does kind of like serve as a foundation for his entire papacy. Yeah, and you can see in this document kind of like the framework for not only the past 10 years of his papacy, but the last month in Rome at the Synod on Synodality. Synodality per se is not a huge focus of the exhortation, but it does talk a lot about the people of God as being the protagonists in addition to the Holy Spirit and the church and the need for them to participate more fully as evangelists and as as part of the church. And it kind of has like an all-timer in terms of like opening lines and very fitting for This Black Friday. Oh, yes, yes. So I'll quote that in full. The great danger in today's world, pervaded as it is by consumerism, is the desolation and anguish born of a complacent yet covetous heart, the feverish pursuit of frivolous pleasures and a blunted conscience. Yeah, I know. He's describing me exactly the day after (laughs) Thanksgiving. Yeah, on my way to the mall right now. Yeah, feverish pursuit pursuit of frivolous pleasures. I don't know if that includes all the side dishes that get passed around the table, but that's kind of how I'm feeling. Um, So good Thanksgiving, Black Friday a long weekend reading, um, and we've got a great person to introduce it. Yes. So we are talking to Raphael Luciani. He's an associate professor of practice at the School of Theology and Ministry at Boston College. He's a Venezuelan theologian who's, who splits his time between Latin America and the United States. So he's really steeped in, in the culture and theology that shaped Pope Francis and this document in particular. Yeah. So uh, stick around. That's our episode this week. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. We'll see you in your podcast feeds next Friday for another brand new episode of Jesuitical. Anyway, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Joining us from Boston is Raphael Luciani. Raphael is an associate professor of practice at the School of Theology and Ministry at Boston College. Welcome to Jesuitical, Raphael. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for the invitation as well to, to SAC. Thank you. 
No, it's great to have you. Maybe before we get into our main topic, I'm curious about your title, like a professor of practice at a school of theology. I feel like Francis would disagree with the distinction between practice and theology. Yeah, well, exactly. And we in Latin America don't make a difference. In fact, we if we don't do pastoral and social engagement, we cannot do theology. That's the way we, we do it now. Uh, all right. We'll get more into that as we discuss the, the main topic of this discussion, which is the apostolic exhortation Evangelii Gaudium. So this November marks the 10-year anniversary of that document, which was Pope Francis's first major document, seen as kind of his programmatic document, laying out his vision of the future of the church in the 21st century. I want to talk about 10 years ago, what it felt like when it came out, because I remember I had just started working at America two months earlier, and I had read papal documents in college. But I remember when this came out, there was a lot of excitement around it, like the other editors at America were like giddy reading it. So I'm wondering, what was your reaction when you first read this document? Well, the document comes from the experience of Aparecida, which is a Latin American Episcopal Conference that was celebrated in 2007. And Francis was the, the director of the team of redactors. So Evangelii Gaudium, the language, the contents, the proposal, it was very, very similar to Aparecida. And in fact, it's funny, but Francis says one time that Evangelii Gaudium was the text from Aparecida that was never published, you know, because in that time, Vatican usually uh, intervened in some documents, yes. And this was a gathering of Latin American bishops that Pope Francis took part in and was very formative for him as he became Pope, right? Yeah, in fact, uh, that's something that we do every 10, 12 years, a, a big general conference of the whole Latin America and the Caribbean. And uh, in that one, uh, he was participating and he was appointed then as the drafter of the document with others, uh, you know, from the continent, yes. But you're saying that Francis kind of tongue-in-cheek said this was the stuff that he couldn't put in that document. What in here is so explosive that he maybe thought that the Vatican would have said, uh, I would keep that part down? For example, uh, for him, it was very important uh, that his papacy uh, began with the war reform. Uh, but the war reform in Evangelii Gaudium uh, comes from Aparecida, that means uh, pastoral conversion, which is a change in the way in which we relate to each other, for example, but also in the structures of the church. Who is welcome? Uh, what can we do to, to better engage with the social and the political and the economic realities of our societies? No? Mm. And what sets this document apart from other you know, previous exhortations or encyclicals? One thing that jumps out just off the page is, is the language is more uh, casual or down to earth. In some parts, it's kind of funny. He says, you know, it, people who are evangelizing shouldn't look like they came out of a funeral. But besides that surface language, what maybe makes it different or maybe in continuity with previous papal documents? The call for a discipleship, missionary a way of understanding the church is very interesting because it's saying that the church needs to learn from society and not vice versa, that we had a church that used to teach. So this change was a very drastic change because it had to do with the mentalities, with the ways in which we relate in the church, in the ways in which we engage with sociopolitical realities as well. So pastoral conversion is a very whole concept of what means to be a church today in the 21st century. What's Francis pointing to in the world that we need to learn from? Because I imagine you don't want to just like 
there's a lot of self self absorption and like the economy that he says you know the economy that we have in the world kills. I don't think he's talking about that when he says we need to learn from the world and other disciplines. Well, for example, the Laudato Si. There's an example of how he does these exhortations. No, he convoked many scientists, most of them non-Catholics, and he learned from all of them what was happening, and then he wrote Laudato Si. Uh, so this is a style that uh, he has, and it's very uh, uh, proper from Latin America, where first we have to do consultations uh, beyond the, the church, and then from that consultation, we start to reflect on the church. You mentioned that a lot of what is in this document was was already kind of in in some form at a parasita. But that said, was there anything in Evangelium that surprised you? Uh, really, it it didn't surprise me, uh, but that's my experience, no? Uh, because the language and the contents uh, are gathered from so many documents and experiences in, in Latin America. So Francis has a style that comes uh, embodied from the culture, the ecclesial culture and the culture in general uh, of Latin America. So he's doing in his popsy that translation, uh, let's say, so the translation into a language that becomes more universal, but it has its roots in his own experience in the Church of Latin America and the Caribbean. I mean, were you surprised though, or like to see it coming from the Vatican or a Pope specifically? Like, because I mean, that seems to have been a, a change. He the was style the first of... Latin American Pope. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised uh, if uh, the Church beyond Latin America was going to receive well that document no because as you were saying the the style the language the the not so formality uh, style of, of francis in the way he writes that i think uh, had a a very uh, shocking experience in many is an example in the curia no because documents are not used to be uh, written in that way in the vatican no so i think that was a, a, a shock i was there in 2013 when he was elected i was working at the gregoriana and when they called us that they just elected a, a Latin America, you're not going to believe it, but many of us were afraid because he had a history in Argentina as a superior that he tended to be, as he owns, explains his own experience, authoritarian. And he did a change. So I remember that the first months, many of the Jesuits with whom I work in Latin America were kind of afraid. What's going to happen here? We know his history. And suddenly, after a month, it began to change. No? In preparation for this, I went back to kind of the responses 10 years ago when this first came out. And one thing that struck me is it it didn't seem very controversial at the time. People who now might be more critical of Francis's papacy seemed to greet this document. It, it kind of had something in it for everyone. You know, he was strong on condemning abortion and the nature of marriage and that sort of thing. So a lot of people welcomed it, even if they would later go on to criticize Pope Francis for other reasons. Why do you think in 10 years ago it landed so well? Or did I just miss the, the stir it caused in some circles? I think in some circles, more traditionalists, it was not well received because the style is very pastoral. And that's something that uh, in the church, not every uh, place in the church under understands this way of under of living the church and the, and even the reflection of theology. So th that was in many circles not well received. 
But I think that the, the second moment it has to do when, when it was explained well what Vangeli Gaudium was saying, because the language was new for many in 2013, 14, 15. But when he started to, to break that language in concrete things, that's when we had a reaction um, of many uh, about the, the proposal that was uh, in Evangelii Gaudium. Could you give like a concrete example of like what was one of those things that caused some of that pushback? Yeah, uh, the concept of pastoral conversion, because many people thought and still think that it's only a change in the pastoral uh, perspective of the church. And that concept comes from 1992, another Episcopal conference in Latin America that speaks of the change of structures in the church and uses the word reform and uses the word reform of power and authority in the church. So many uh, didn't make that uh, link with uh, the concept and, and its meaning. So I think that uh, at the beginning was, yeah, so nice because it says pastoral but didn't grab what uh, was behind that concept. But like, what's like, a, maybe maybe the synod is a good place to look where you had, um, it was the synod of bishops, but all of a sudden you had non-bishops there voting and contributing. Is is that like a type of reform that you see sort of the seeds of in this document or earlier in Latin America? Yeah, in, in the conference that we have in Latin America, the lay people and, and others, uh, religious presbyters participate and they're also uh, members and, and experts. That was an experience that for him was very, um, you know, molding his and uh, shaping his own way of being Pope. Uh, and for example, there, is, there was a conference in 1968 that uh, Mark shaped the whole continent. Uh, it was called Medellin because of the city of Medellin in, in Colombia. And the lay people uh, in that conference were in different tables other than the one that was dedicated for the document on laity. When their document on Leite was written and they went to the plenary, the bishop said, one moment, this document is about the Leite and was not written by the Leite. So go back and read the document. So that's a way to say that uh, for us, uh, the participation of Leite is not something that is not usual in, in the practice of the church. And I think Francis grabs that experience. Uh, of so many years in Latin America. And, and now when we speak about the Synod, it, it includes that way of working with lay, with religious, with presbyters, and not only bishops. So one of the main themes of the document is this idea of having a church that's outward looking, that goes into the street, that like he literally says that, you know, its shoes get soiled by the mud of the street. So obviously, if he's saying that this is what we need, he didn't see that as where the church was at the moment, or at least not all of the church. So I'm wondering, what was he reacting to when he said, you know, we need to open this up? Because wasn't, you know, that's what we were supposed to do with Vatican II, right, was open the windows of the church. Yeah, I, I had a funny experience about that with a nuncio in a country that a friend of mine was appointed bishop. And he was called no? because they needed to say to him to give him the message. And the nuncio said to this uh, friend of mine, while Francis is Pope, do not use a gold cross. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of the, the what, what now in Evangelium we, we start to see. It's not simply about going out to society, but going out and in a way that we opt for the poor, for the excluded and for the marginalized. That's uh, the, the notion of exit. Uh, so it's not simply exit because I'm going to teach the other. It's the opposite. It's because I need to learn from the other. 
so it changes everything. So I imagine people, I don't know, in the bishops and, and priests that uh, were so formal and, and in the dressing and everything. And now, you know, Francis comes with this speech of going out, being ships, smelling like ships. And, and you know, it's like a, get into the reality of the world and do not live in your bubbles. That's the message. Wow. So the, the nuncio, the guy who's like telling this new bishop, like what it's going to be like. One of the distinct messages is, you know, that cross that you get to wear to let people know that you're a bishop while Francis is pope, it better not be gold. I mean, that's gold right there, that that little nugget of wisdom, but also hints at like, there might be some people that are waiting for Francis to kind of die. And like, this was only going to be a temporary thing. And we could go back to the way things were before. Do you feel like that is still like a sense or people trying to receive the teaching that was in Evangelii Gaudium? Or are we just kind of like putting it on a shelf and waiting for time to pass? No, I think you you have um, resistance and indifference, both attitudes. Uh, resistance when we see these publicly uh, confrontations uh, about his teaching. And then you have indifference, those who may say, oh yeah, he's a nice Pope, he speaks very well, the social engagement, etc. But I don't do anything in my diocese or in my parish or in my community. No? So we have these two types of attitudes. And I think as uh, his popesy began to move from pastoral conversion towards synodal conversion, that was much more explosive, this um, uh, resistance. So I think, yes, he still have a lot of uh, resistance, a lot of uh, public um, resistance. And I think it's because the change of the mentality and the change of the structures, we're dealing with a 40, 50 years uh, that we inherited of acting in a way. And now he comes and he's saying, well, we have lost Vatican II. We didn't remember that existed Vatican II. Well, let's get it back. Let's receive today Vatican II. One thing that struck me when I was rereading it is you can't come away from this document without being very challenged about, especially in, the, in North America, like our economic system and the place of the poor and marginalized. So that, I think, is the most challenging part. But in the 10 years since this document, the big fights in the church in the U.S. have not been about <laughs> so much about the place of the poor. It's like we all agree that the poor, you know, deserve our attention, but we really want to fight about these culture issues. So I'm wondering if like are do North American Catholics just not get it? <laughs> like, are we still learning? Are we still need to go back to Evangelium again and again? Yeah, I think the the option for the poor is a very challenging uh, option for the whole church. And he brings a novelty as well. It's not a personal option. It has to be an ecclesial, a structural option. That means that uh, not simply uh, as a person, I have to go to the poor places and be with poor people, but my whole structure in the church needs to move towards that option. Yeah, I, I imagine, for example, a parish. Uh, do we do this option in a parish? Or do we see the poor people just as someone who needs uh, assistance? So what Francis is trying to say, uh, those are the preferential subjects of God. And we see God's face in the poor. And, and that's a, a shift for many people that the poor were, like you were saying, some someone over there. I give some money, uh, but I don't engage in a humane relationship with those poor.
as a theologian, people sometimes say that, oh, Francis is a, he's a pastor. Um, and they kind of give this distinction between pastoral work and theology proper. Like it's sometimes contrasted with Benedict as like Benedict was the theologian. Francis is the, you know, the real pastoral person. What's, what's your sense as a theologian is Francis's theology? Is he, is he a theologian, proper theologian in his own right? Or is he really just kind of a pastor? It's uh, the model, the style of doing theology and the method is different. He uses the word, do not do theology in a desk, in an office, a theology, you know, uh, where you're limited to books. And I feel, I feel compelled to point out that you are talking to us at a desk right now. <laughs> yeah, because I have to record with you. <laughs> so I had to, I had to return to my desk. <laughs> Well, we're grateful you did. So thank you. I had to do a pastoral conversion. (laughs) It's like saying, if we don't have a social place to engage with, we cannot do theology. That's the difference. So from the the lens of the other in the society is where we see how to do theology. So it's not about writing only about justice, for example. Is engaging in a work, a pastoral work, where I can see justice and live justice and experience justice with the others. And then I can write about that. So it's a, a connection. Theology as re- reflection, but a reflection of the reality and the reality as a starting point to do a reflection. If not, we become you know, abstracts uh, for the world today. A lot of people would say, like as to be critical that that's the work of sociology not theology um how would you respond to that that's one of the uh, criticisms i think of people that forget the people (laughs) and 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 i think it's not simply uh, reduced to sociology is that uh, we have a responsibility as humans to be humanized and humane humanize the other that means i have to change but i change in the relationship with the other when we say the word welcoming, uh, yeah, welcoming is not simply opening the doors, it's going to where the people are. So, so it changes everything because that relationship makes me uh, think, makes me discern, makes, makes me change many of the things that I believe in. That's the, the real theology. I have to say, at least in the United States, uh, academia is not exactly seen as in touch with the people. <laughs> and I'm wondering, you split your time between the U.S. and Latin America. Is that a uniquely American problem or is that the case when you teach in Latin America? And, and how can academics break out of that bubble to actually do this kind of pastoral theology? Yeah, there is a tendency in, in the U.S. Um, to professionalize a theology, but that means to reduce it to producing contents and then publish it, no? In a certain style. In in other countries, not only in Latin America, but uh, in Germany, I study in Germany, and practical and pastoral theology are embodied in the reflection uh, of a more theoretical approach. We don't do that separation uh, completely, or in Italy. Uh, where the pastoral experience becomes then a theological reflection. So it's not only Latin America, but I think the U.S. needs to rethink uh, what academia in regards to theology means uh, because it's becoming not meaningful anymore. Do you think doing something that made it more in touch and practical would attract more students? Because theology departments are struggling and 
Catholic schools across the country right now. There's fewer and fewer majors. Um, so do you think doing a more Pope Francis approach to theology would be attractive to young people? Well, I think it's not only that it's going to be more attractive, but the theologian itself uh, needs a theological conversion uh, to, to say so. That means um, I cannot be only in my desk receiving students. Uh, I, I don't even know then what the, what the students leave, their conditions. Then how can I engage theologically with those people? So I think that disconnect between the faculty and the people in the communities is a huge problem right now in the U.S. Going back to one of the other major themes that I found in this document is Francis seems to be holding these two things in tension, globalism, the ways that we're connected in the world, and also holding on to cultural diversity. And I get a sense that there's a lot of, on the one hand, on the other hand, when he's talking about these things. What's the conflict there for Francis and for the church? The option for the poor. Uh, you have a majority in the world that are poor, and that's a, a fact. So uh, the church it doesn't do an option because uh, it simply wants, it's because the following of Jesus, the way in which Jesus uh, lived in the society of his time, was uh, opting preferentially for the marginalized, for the excluded, for the victims, for the for the poor, no? So for him, it's a matter of option and defining what means to be Christian today and not simply a, an option in, in sociology or social political option per se. Uh, so for him, it's a delicate, sensitive way of understanding if we are really responding to the following of Jesus or to the way in which Jesus was human to the others. So I want to shift to connect this document to the ongoing synod on synodality. It's not a prominent part of the document, which given how central it's been to the rest of Francis's papacy might strike people as odd. Do you see the blueprint maybe for Pope Francis's approach to synodality in this document, even if it isn't named as such? Yeah, because the, the word people of God in the document is the ground, the foundation to speak about synodality and also the way in which the Second Vatican Council, when the reform of the church uh, occurred in, in the 60s, also is the foundation of Evangelii Gaudium. And what he's saying is the pastoral conversion of Evangelii Gaudium needs to be completed with a synodal conversion. That means, how do we bring this into structures in the church and not simply a, a very nice ideal, no, a, an utopic ideal? And that's where you have to connect both concepts. 2013, pastoral conversion, 2015, synodal conversion. You find it in the document, there is a push to like decentralize the papacy a little bit, which strikes me as an important part of synodality. Yeah, exactly. And, and he speaks in Evangelii Gaudium about the conversion of popes, I mean, what means to be pope. And decentralization has to do with uh, giving the proper power to the Episcopal Conference, that means each in each country. So for example, in a church, uh, they may need maybe a type of ministry, and in other, in other church, they may need another one, different. That's what Francis has in mind, how local churches, local realities need to be prioritized and not universal ideas, very nice, uh, but you're not responding to the people in their local places where they live. Regarding the synod, one of the critiques I saw was that Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned enough there. It was like 
the Holy Spirit took center stage and Jesus was missing from all of the talks and documents. Um, and this document is oft, obviously very Christocentric and about the idea of a personal encounter with Christ. Do you think that's a, a fair criticism that the synod was too much Holy Spirit, not enough Jesus? Or is it unfair to even separate those? Yeah, I heard one time a Jesuit from the U.S. telling another Jesuit from Latin America, you don't use the word God so much, no? Uh, but that means uh, that we have to situate uh, each of them in their own context. I imagine as Latin American Francis uh, presupposes the word Jesus and God because it's he's talking about the style of being like Jesus, but he's not saying every time Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. Uh, maybe in another context, uh, the word Jesus needs to be uh, pronounced and said to differentiate or to uh, accentuate more my identity in regards to that society. So it's very different according to the cultures and the ways of understanding a society and our testimony, witness no, in society. I got the sense reading this document that it's most useful for people already engaged in some kind of evangelization. That's not. It's not necessarily only priests, but I mean, people who are doing theology or maybe podcasting or campus ministry or or even in their own lives, they live a lay vocation and have a professional career, but they have some sense of themselves as participating in evangelization. Is that primarily who you would recommend this work for? Because it seems like I don't know that I would give this to someone who um, is maybe just starting to come back into relationship or come into relationship with Jesus or the church. Yeah, I think the problem are us in the church uh, when we have these documents, because the document is understanding evangelization as being with the other and promoting uh, the way in which that other person lives in society. In, uh, but we have people in the church that understands evangelization just as a doctrinarian uh, way of engaging with the other, have to teach the other, have to highlight the doctrine in, in which I believe. No, So you have two types of um, uh, ways of understanding evangelization. Francis is writing to those that are not thinking in evangelization as a transmission of doctrine. He's understanding evangelization as how can I be human today in my relationships with the other? How can I learn from the other? And then I have to engage in promoting justice promoting uh, economic well wellness and all those things that make us really uh, human in our society as well. So we talked about how present in this document is the idea of decentralization and conversion and, and letting other people convert us. But another critique of Pope Francis is that he's kind of you mentioned that in Argentina, he was seen as kind of an authoritarian uh, figure. I think some people in the church today still see him that way. The future of the church is synodality and everybody better get on board or you're going to miss the train. <laughs> uh, do you think that that's fair or do you think he is trying to keep everyone together and on board with his project and, and listening to critiques openly. Yeah, I think we have not had so much freedom in the church like now. And to put an example, uh, he received all the criticisms, even some bishops that we know that are calling him heretic. Uh, in popes before him, that would be immediately condemned. So that means that we have kind of a, a possibility of speaking anything in the church and even saying it to the Pope, that's a sign of freedom in him. And at the same time, it's a sign, it's a sign that the church needs to learn to receive criticisms. 
If not, we will never change, you know? And he's doing it with his own life. I do want to, before we let you go, you, you were in Rome for the Synod, yes? Yes. I know you can't tell us what happened in the hall, but you were one of the theologian experts. So just curious, your your reactions of, of what you experienced during uh, this past month. Yeah, the assembly was for me an intercontinental uh, assembly meeting, because before in the synodal process, we have been doing listenings in our own local uh, and regions. Uh, and now we have this aula uh, where we have people from all parts of the world. So my experience was to uh, listen so much uh, diversity that exists in, in the church. And how can we respect that diversity without imposing our own image uh, of church that we have from our own regions? No, uh, So that was really interesting. And then we saw how in the debates we could see different positions. But the, the beautiful thing is that the method allowed to do that. Uh, in former synods, it was not so uh, like that. Uh, so it was also part of the way in which Francis understood that we need to talk and express uh, with freedom what we think. So you do feel like there were actual different perspectives shared, like real debate was happening? Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, the, we had the, the plenaries where you had uh, free speeches and you had the plenaries where you had the, uh, the conclusions of each one of the tables. And in the free speeches, you could see that uh, some person said something and immediately another person took the word and, and said uh, the opposite, no? Uh, and they were not fighting, but they were able to say so uh, different uh, positions without entering in conflict. I think that's something that we need to learn. Uh, it's not about having simply different positions. It's that we need to have different positions in the church and learn to reconcile them by respecting each other and not polarizing the debates. What would you say to someone listening who, you know, wants to make the most of the next 11 months between now and the next October session, whether in their parish or community, their school, but what can they practically do? It's the year of uh, thinking in the concrete changes. Uh, before we have been listening and listening means, okay, we have to uh, know what people are thinking and discerning about the church. And now we have found which are the priorities where we have to put our eyes and see real thoroughly that those priorities need to move forward and provoke changes. No? So this is the year, 11 months to do that. And that's why it is the first time that a, a synod is going to create a group of theologians and canonists, not simply theologians, because uh, you have to articulate uh, the changes in real structures, in real uh, things where we can see the change. No? And those are this next 11th month for, uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge because not everybody wants that. All right. So we're going to have to get a canon lawyer on next. Yes, to explain <laughs> all the things, we, all the structures we got to change. Uh, Dr. Luciani, thank you so much for coming on the show and nerding out about this document that was so central to Francis's papacy and continues to be. Before we let you go, though, we have one final question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, if you could canonize one person living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? 
Well, I think that a, a person that I knew in Fe Alegría, you know, the schools of Fe Alegría, it's a project that was born in Venezuela and right now it's all over the world. It's schools for uh, people that do not have access to a good private education. And these schools are in very poor zones, no? So one time, a, a, a one of the sisters, always you have sisters uh, living in this, inside the schools. And one sister uh, told me that if I really wanted to be a theologian, I needed to be a humane person. And that seems very naive, but uh, at least in my, in my way of doing theology has helped me uh, because at the end, it is about that in life or we become humanes, humanes, not simply humans, humanes, or we're losing time in, in the world. It shocked me because I, I was beginning as a lay uh, to study theology. In, in Latin America, there are not so many lay who can study theolo theology because then you don't have where to work uh, as much possibilities on other continents. So yes, it was for me like uh, opening the eye uh, and focusing in what was important uh, when I studied theology. All right, Raphael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, can people find your work anywhere? Where should we point them to? Well, I just recently published a, a book on synodality. I think that book may help to understand outside Latin America how uh, Francis uh, thinks about synodality uh, with the, having the roots, uh, not only in Latin America, but in the Second Vatican Council. And just the word people of God, it's there. And it's a word that not so many people are uh, taking into account today in the church, people of God. Great. And the book is Synodality, A New Way of Proceeding in the Church. And we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Good, good market timing, by the way, to have that out <laughs> right about now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you Thank so much, you. Dr. Thank Nishiani. you, Zach. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks. Thank you so much. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Michael O'Brien, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.